I'm Tyler Hake, and you're listening to Season 1, Episode 8 of Next Story Up, a smart building services podcast by Schneider Electric. Act 1. Thank you. An infrastructure inversion. Welcome to the closing episode of Season 1 for Next Story Up. Before we get into the content today, We'd love to thank you all for joining us this season. It's been so rewarding to interact with so many listeners and to watch our engagement and subscriptions grow. And it makes us very inspired and engaged to learn from our audience and make season two even better. Please let us know what you like about the show as well as how we can improve in the comments section. And of course, rate and subscribe if we could be so lucky. You're amazing. Thank you for listening. Here's a question though. Why are you listening? What about today's point in time makes it so that the building space and building technologies is interesting and exciting? Buildings have been around for a while. Innovation has been happening alongside them and within them for about as long. The building automation industry is at this point pretty much down to a science. We've installed them the world over and currently know what to expect. Doesn't that knowledge seem like it conflicts with the conversations we've had in our various episodes this season about innovation incubation, building apps, using big data, new integrations, and occupant centricity? What makes now the perfect time for us to be speaking with these amazing guests? And why have we created this journey that we want to share with you in the first place? Well, the first reason is the reality that buildings can, should, and must continue to get better. They must get better because according to the EPA, the average American spends 87% of their lives indoors within buildings. If I asked you whether or not you would like 9 out of 10 hours to be marginally better for you, to make you feel healthier, to make you happier, to empower you, and enable you to do more, what do you think you would say? That's what we're talking about with buildings, and the opportunity is not at all about marginal improvement, but about reinvention, which is why we should never be shy or unimaginative about how to improve them for each and every occupant. The opportunity that we have in front of us right now to make our buildings and in turn our lives better due to the confluence of technologies like the Internet of Things and AI is bigger and more attainable than ever before by a factor too large to count. This is because, according to Navigant Research, the total number of smart devices in buildings will reach 4.4 billion, with the potential to reach as many as 10 billion devices, by 2020, so over the next seven months. The smart building future is already here. We at Next Story Up believe we should all be thinking really big when it comes to our building environments. The opportunity is immense, and the potential to improve the quality of our lives is as compelling here as you'll find almost anywhere else, with the added benefit that we can also, of course, improve the state of the planet with more energy-efficient buildings that can readily purchase and deploy renewable energy technologies. Of course, there will be resistance, And the second big reason the time is now is that we'd like to play a small part in bolstering the community against that kind of negativity. Anytime you talk about innovation and change, there will be people saying it can't or shouldn't be done. The particular beauty of what we will see in the building realm in 2019 and beyond, however, is that we are not revolutionizing a product, but an infrastructure for services. And when infrastructure is revolutionized, history shows us that it results in what's called infrastructure inversion. So the second way we'd like to illustrate why now is the perfect time to launch this podcast and have these conversations is that we need to anticipate an infrastructure inversion in building technology analogous to what we've seen in things like roads, the electric grid, and the internet. 
Each of these are fun case studies, and maybe I'll be able to chat with my guests today about them further, but I'll choose to illustrate my point by just describing one infrastructure inversion, the impact of the automobile. Today, and this is a number that still stuns me, there are over 1 billion cars in the streets of the world. We all now know that the Ford Model T is one of the most famous American innovations of all time, but we really, really take it for granted that when cars first started rolling onto the street, people did not universally love them, and it was not clear at all to most people that they would follow the path that they have. That's because the infrastructure for the first cars was not made for a world of cars. It was made for the current world of horse. The first cars were, obviously to us, superior in at least concept to horses, but in fact at the time it would have been debatable to make that claim. They were a new technology that had none of the infrastructure we have today. No traffic signals or laws, no gas stations, no mechanic shops. In fact, horses were much better equipped for their immediate surroundings because they didn't get stuck in the mud and they didn't get caught on bumps that are fine for a world of horses, but not for cars. In some cases, such as evidenced by the British Locomotive Act or Red Flag Act of 1865, cars were also scary and intimidating. In this legislation, cars were considered so dangerous and untrustworthy that it was required that a man walk at least 60 yards in front so that people knew it was coming and to assist in the passage of horses and carriages. This kind of defeats the purpose of having a car. In today's world of 1 billion cars, we laugh at the idea of people thinking horses were better ways for getting around. But when cars were invented, you could have made a pretty clear and obvious case that we modern earthlings would never be right. So, what happened? The technologists and innovators who really believed in the future of automobile and the benefits it would have for society kept tinkering, kept working while everyone else laughed at them on their hands and knees, fixing their new gadgets on the side of a horse path. And eventually the technology got better to the point that mass production made sense and consumer adoption started to turn ever so slowly in favor of cars. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story and why marrying superior technology with improvements in infrastructure is so compelling, is not that the car was better, but that we started paving roads to provide an infrastructure to support them. And the fascinating thing about an infrastructure inversion, which I remind you is why I believe we are at such an exciting time in buildings, is that the previous world can just become a part of the new infrastructure that was disrupted. Horses can still use paved roads. But the infrastructure is now not just for horses, nor is it just for cars. Cars led to better infrastructure that now created the ability to have semi-trucks and motorcycles, bicycles, skateboards, segways, which might actually get a reference in this conversation today, the new unicorn industry of electric scooters that continues to prove the power of this inversion, gas stations, auto shops, traffic lights, billboard advertising, drive-in movie theaters, restaurants, and of course, still allowed for, for example, policemen on horseback. Before, the infrastructure literally only supported horses. Now, it supported not only various technologies, but produced far more. That is infrastructure inversion. We should be excited about this in our industry of digitization and electrification. In buildings, instead of trying to bring use cases and integrations as best we can into our current model, think integrating lighting into BAS, for example, we are now using a common internet backbone, as we learned in episode two, that will take our systems, lighting, temperature control, security cameras, access control, elevators, fire, etc., 
out of their silos and onto the same inverted infrastructure. This will allow our systems to inform one another and create use cases in every building vertical market. So hospitals, K-12 schools, high-rise office buildings, and the like, in ways we have not been able to do previously. It will also create that infrastructure inversion, bringing more and more systems and technologies into buildings, simply because the platform is now there. It will allow us to do more with our endless building system data, because we'll be able to more seamlessly connect to the cloud for services and analytics, in turn making our spaces more occupant-centric and energy-efficient. We should be excited about building technologies because we are at one of these rare moments afforded us where a big change is here for us to embrace that has the power to change everything for the better in ways that we currently can't fully imagine. Which is my third and final point for subscribing to this podcast and listening today. We are repurposing our world to provide services that make all our lives and the lives of our loved ones better. We shouldn't and can't be afraid to imagine, and our final guest for season one is the perfect person to help us understand that. Kevin Self is the Senior Vice President of Strategy, Business Development, and Government Relations at Schneider Electric North America. As a member of the North America Executive Leadership Team, Kevin is responsible for the development and execution of a winning strategy that drives profitable growth across all lines of business in alignment with Schneider Electric's Life is On brand. Key responsibilities include driving market intelligence by understanding market dynamics, customer needs, and overall positioning within the competitive landscape. Ensuring customer centricity is embedded in the decisions and investments across the business portfolio, developing and optimizing government relationships at state and federal levels, and identifying growth opportunities that align with the strategy. We chat with Kevin about what excites him about strategy and innovation in the world of building technology and beyond in Act 2. Act 2. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Buckminster Fuller. And with that, let's dive right into our conversation with Kevin. Yeah, Tyler, thanks for, thanks for having me on. A lot happening in the space of energy management and industrial automation. A couple of things are of great interest at this time in 2019. One, the electrification of almost everything. Yep. And as more things become electrified, what's the impact on our company? What's the impact on society? Sort of the everything connected, the massive amount of data that that drives and the, and the demands, including from gaming and how gaming's becoming very mobile. And I'll have a comment on that uh, shortly. <laughs> yeah. The, the changing new energy landscape across the U.S. And it, it doesn't happen everywhere at once. Talk talk to people in Houston about what they've endured the last few years. Talk to the people up in Northern California, yep. what they endured a year ago with the fires. Yep. And, and you know the world is is definitely changing. And that and that pace of change is is also rapidly moving forward. It's it's interesting. There's an interesting chart that I've showed about the pace of change. And so for example, it took about 62 years for the automobile to infiltrate 25% of U.S. homes. And so, wow, 62 years to hit 25%. Look at YouTube, which took four years to infiltrate 25%. And then my best example is the game Fortnite, which was launched in July 2017. 
and a very short 16 months later, so a year, a little over a year, it had 200 million players. That's ridiculous. Once things become connected and, and mobile, it changes what we're able to do, and that will also ultimately have impact on, on buildings. A couple other points, the next 40 years, there's going to be some massive change on this planet. We see global energy demand at 1.5x what it is today, so 50% increase. Okay. However, we need to cut carbon emissions in half, and so you're going to need to be three times more efficient. That's an incredible opportunity, an incredible problem to be solved for our generations and the generations behind us. The connectivity and digitization you mentioned there lends itself well to that platform inversion that we talked about in the lead up today, where now that you've got everything connected, you can find all sorts of ways to reach mass usership. I also, this is a rare opportunity for me to shout out my little sister who lives in Houston and has had to leave every year for the last few years because of the flooding that you referenced down there, which really has been a phenomenal problem. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting, just one other one other point on that and just sort of on the electrification yeah. of it was interesting a couple of years ago, I heard this great analogy to say, you know, what if, what if both Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison were both to wake up today yep. and Alexander Graham Bell would say, you know, okay, where's, where's the telephone? I need to make a call. And we would all hand him this device from our pockets and he would look at us with a, you know, big open mouth. Thomas Edison would say, okay, let me look at the electrical grid. He would walk outside, see all the power, the, the lines and the poles and say, yep, 110 years later, nothing has changed. <laughs> yep. And very few industries stay unchanged for this long. Thus, my belief, we're in the midst, the early midst of this massive change across the electrification of everything. I think that buildings are kind of in that middle range there between Alexander Graham Bell's future and Thomas Edison's future, where they've changed a little bit. But I think the digital environment is a little bit slower to adopt. So this is a series that focuses on buildings. What do you think are the most important developments in the buildings industry over the next few years? Yeah, great question. And, and really, it starts from, you know, a, a couple of facts. Is one is sort of buildings in existence today already are going to account for 65% of all buildings standing in 2060. So in some ways, we're always thinking about that new building we're going to build, and that's the focus, but realizing there's so much installed base that already exists, we need to solve for that. Wow. And, and the other issue is that, you know, buildings constitute about 40% of the global energy usage. And, and so if we're going to increase efficiency three times, buildings must be part of the solution. And it, it needs to be solutions that focus on both the demand side and also the supply side. So a quick shout out, I'm on the board of directors for the Alliance to Save Energy, a 42-year-old Washington, D.C.-based organization really working with federal government, with Congress and, and the Senate to really push for energy efficiency standards, which have done so well in the U.S. to date and need to keep doing that work going forward. I think the other big challenge is cities, which are continuing to make these various carbon neutrality commitments, yep. and that has to mean carbon neutral buildings. And so demand side, and there's some perspective that you need to reduce demand 50 to 85 percent, which, you know, heating, cooling, lighting, hot water. And then you take a step back and you say, okay, what are the supply side changes we need to put in place to help drive that? And there's some pretty incredible things being done with buildings today from the, you know, 3D printing yep. of new buildings to, to new, you know, living concretes, self-healing concrete. A company I know quite well, View Glass, led by Rob Mopuri, which is saying, you know, boy, look at all the wasted energy, hot and cold that are flowing through this glass. 
on weekends when no one's sitting there and if you had some type of a dynamic shading, how could that assist? And so you, you start seeing these examples where technology can help solve these massive problems. And I love the view glass example because I think it also illustrates the fact that once you've got a connected building platform there, you can start integrating something that historically was completely separate from your building automation, HVAC temperature control. And now you can integrate how to control that space temperature wise with the envelope of the building with that dynamic glazing and glass. And it's a great example of how these systems are tying together and, and enabling better outcomes. Agreed. I also think, you know, as you were talking through that, there's a lot of legislation, like in New York City, where I live, there's a lot of waves made recently and um, about some of these regulations and, and really focusing in New York on buildings because yeah. of the fact that New York, you've got kind of the metro and, and people get around that way. So one of the best things you can control in New York is, is building standards to help reduce emissions. No, absolutely agree. And a lot of times those standards are state-based. And, and I also lead government affairs for Schneider Electric, so yep. spend a lot of time thinking about this as well. And, you know, they're, they're state-based. In some ways, they're county-based or city-based. And New York's taking a leading position, I would argue, due to Superstorm Sandy of however many years ago. Absolutely. California with the solar mandate coming in about, what, seven, eight months. Yep. New homes will, will have solar. And so you see various U.S. states working to tackle this problem. It won't happen at the same speed everywhere, but it's definitely a movement forward. It's a combination, and this is something that Trish Starkey talked about in a previous conversation, of sustainability goals, but also a need for better resiliency. And marrying the, those two topics together, as you mentioned, a place like New York with Sandy or California with the superstorms, them looking to help protect themselves yeah. by enabling better efficiency in renewables is, is really important. You're absolutely right. And, and actually, there's a third component, as I've worked with Trish and, and her team in the past, the conversation you have with customers is you can solve for cost, you can solve for sustainability, or you can solve for resiliency. And I see them as like three separate platters that you move over each other based on what's most important. For those in, in Houston that dealt with Hurricane Harvey two years ago, obviously resiliency would be top of mind of how do we get to high, high, high resiliency, maybe with some sustainability. But those are the three metrics to be discussed as we're designing this future. Should we take an opportunity now to talk about one of the projects that Trish might be involved with and her team with Alpha Structure at a large yeah. infrastructural site? Yeah, so earlier this year, we at Schneider Electric launched a joint venture with the Carlisle Group, a private equity firm based in Washington, D.C. We've been working with them for a couple of years, specifically on microgrids, and, and they, they noticed that there was opportunity well beyond just microgrids. And so in April last month, we launched Alpha Structure. Okay. And so the first big opportunity that we're working on with them is the redevelopment of JFK Terminal 1. I think of it as, and this is a great segue from our last comments just now, smart, resilient, sustainable infrastructure. Yep. $12 billion of redevelopment. But it's not just putting another building in place. The intent is to reduce energy use by 30%. They're targeting 100% renewables by 2025, 100% composting of organic waste and recycling of all inorganic waste, and even really thinking out to say, how do you optimize so that every vehicle today, maybe internal combustion, tomorrow EV, tomorrow, tomorrow autonomous, right. <laughs> vehicle that shows up has a purpose, has a package or a person. So maybe the vehicle shows up with a person, the person gets out, a package gets in it, then goes and gets delivered. And it's an opportunity to really rethink how we make things so much more efficient 
And I think it's a key point that the days of buildings being separate, independent structures are probably over if we're looking to solve this climate issue. And it's a combination of the built environment plus electric mobility plus the grid and how they all work with each other in a system. That's a beautiful vision for smart cities of the future, obviously. Yes, it is. It's also indicative of the way that customer decisions change over time as the world evolves. How have you seen those decisions and investments and strategies from your position related to technology change? I'd say early on, they were uh, much more siloed Okay. because the connectivity wasn't there. Yep. You were maybe solving for just a few issues within a customer group. And so you could approach it in a more of a siloed approach. I think things are changing as we're talking here, right? And the connectivity of all these pieces then means that you need to have a value proposition that's going to touch many different entities. And, and so it's how do you optimize a solution that may not completely hit the highest of all your metrics, but in total, in the aggregate, it's delivering what you need. And so I see many more players who are having a voice who are able to weigh in in solving it as a system of systems versus an independent problem. Who is it that's involved in making those decisions and, and what are the kind of challenges that they face? I think it goes across the board. You can have, you know, there's, there's financial. Yep. So a CFO is gonna weigh in in terms of what's the payback. Also, you need to ensure that you're getting the customer what they need. I mean, we, the world is so transparent today with various apps we have on our phones, we can find out information pretty quickly. And so how do you ensure you're delivering a value proposition that really resonates with your customer? And so the sales side and the commercial side is key. The people side as well, just to the point of how transparent and easy it is to move from one thing to another, are you developing a solution that has your people in mind? And once again, coming back to the built environment, it used to be, here's the building, here's a desk, good luck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now there's products such as a product called Building Robotics became comfy. It was bought by Siemens last year. I, I knew these guys about seven, eight years ago, and they basically gave people within their office the ability to alter the temperature, which is a key issue a lot of people have in, in buildings. So how do you give people greater opportunity to have some impact and direct some change within what's being delivered? So it's a combination of stakeholders that I believe are now uh, making the decisions. I think if there's been one common thread in the podcast discussions we've had this season, it has been that there is more of a focus on occupant centricity and occupant behaviors, enabling better outcomes for those occupants, regardless of what type of building it is. A much more heightened focus on that now than ever before for lots of reasons, but partly because the better they feel, the longer you can keep them there as employees, the more satisfied they are, the better they produce. Absolutely. And look at them. The years of everyone, you know, walking into the same building, sitting in the same office or at the same desk are, I think, probably behind us. And with connectivity as strong as it is, even how we're conducting this conversation right now, not, you know, not sitting face to face. It's just this is the world that we're in today. And those younger than us, high schoolers, college, et cetera, they won't know anything different. Colleagues who may, they may not see for months, years is, in my mind, not necessarily going to be something strange to them. So two points there that I love. The infrastructure inversion that I uh, was, was discussing in the, in the lead up today, we're recording this call on Skype, which is a great example of when I was 11 or 12, in order for me to talk to my friends on chat, it had to be done over the phone line and nobody could be on the phone and my parents were always really mad at me. I don't know if you have had an experience like that, but 
Now we're doing the exact opposite. We, the internet is so pervasive and everything is so connected that the phone is being conducted over the internet along with many other things that I do over the internet. And the other thing yeah. is it's really cool to think of people that are 10 or 11 years old now that have never known a world without running water, electricity, and high-speed internet because their perspective of the world is just that. It's funny. I think that the first place I really saw this change happening was a couple of years ago. It was actually Netflix. Netflix was doing some work to try to get a sense of how do we better identify what that next movie is that me or you are going to want. And they couldn't solve it internally, so they put out a prize for the external world to solve. Okay. The external world solved it. The group that ended up solving it met each other for the first time when they were getting off the plane to go accept their award. <laughs> and that's when I really first started realizing, are we moving towards a world where there's a lot of very strong, well-skilled, independent agents that come together to solve big, massive problems, are successful, and then head out to find that next problem to solve. It certainly changes the way we need to think of how people go to work and how buildings cater to what those demands might be of people working. Yes. Do you have any other examples of sites yeah. that you're proud of that exhibit some of the, the connectivity that you're talking about? So one is uh, back from my previous days when I was at Johnson Controls. We were one of the parties that helped redevelop the Empire State Building. So this is about 2009. Okay. The 89-year-old Empire State Building needed a retrofit. And so a lot of people would say, impossible, you can't do this, it's a built environment, There's yep. it's just so much old technology. Great work done by a number of parties. End of the day, energy was reduced by about 30%. They were able to save around $4 million a year. And it also obtained some LEED certification, which allowed you to then also charge more for rent because the demand was higher for a LEED certified facility. Yeah. And so, you know, when I saw that, if we can do this to the Empire State Building, you can pretty much do it in many other places. One other example is a great Schneider story is the Shedd Aquarium in uh, downtown Chicago. Shedd is a sustainable home for 1,500 species. And their aspiration was how do we cut energy in half by 2020 versus 2013, keeping the facility a comfortable place for all species, including those species that walk on two legs that visit between the hours of 8 and, and 9 p.m. Yeah. So also how could they make it more resilient? And so we've worked with them very closely to reduce energy consumption and at the same time assist them with energy production side with solar and, and storage on site. So once again, a 80 plus year old building that wanted to rethink how we use energy going forward. That's a great one. I'm a huge fan of aquariums. That's one of the things that I try to visit every time I travel is the, the local aquarium. So I salute you for your efforts on that. Thank you. I'd also like to say that the lead example that you mentioned before about being able to charge a premium in a space like that is, is certainly something that we've seen over the years and is now evolving even further to this point of connectivity. You're seeing things like wired scores and well buildings that are other certifications that exhibit to potential leaseholders that this is a connected building or a place that is looking at well-being alongside of green and sustainability. And then look, at you have companies, right, like WeWorks are now called the We Company that's tried to really focus on this yep. and are probably trying to tackle a, maybe a different problem than those that have been in the industry for a long time and how do you build a place that you can optimize your employees experiences and that's what they're looking to solve for and they seem to have had some pretty good success and great growth over the last couple of years. They, I think they've benefited from being able to look at it from an outsider's perspective and tackle it a different way and, and that's very true. Yes. 
Kevin, earlier you mentioned that you work with the Alliance to Save Energy. I understand you're also an external advisory board member for the Energy Institute at University of Michigan, Go Blue, and an executive council member for the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern. How is the university experience embracing a technology-centered future? Let's face it, at the end of the day, they're all competing for students. Yep. And many of these students are more and more aware of climate issues and they want their schools to be focused there as well. And if you think about universities, they're also competing with online universities. Wow, yeah. Similar to this conversation we're having here is you can do your work without necessarily going into a building. Is there a day where you can have that full experience of college without ever leaving your house to be determined? But, but those are some of the things they're dealing with. And so both Northwestern University and the University of Michigan are very engaged thinking about the future of energy. The, the University of Michigan president made a commitment last October to achieve carbon neutrality. He realizes that the leading universities in this country have to solve and tackle this problem. And you just can't tackle it for that university in Ann Arbor, but how do you devise a solution that's modular that can and has, will have to be replicated across the country and across the planet? So they're very engaged and it's interesting out of this, Schneider is a founding member of an entity called the Climate Leadership Council, which is proposing a carbon tax or carbon fee. And, about a year ago, a student organization was spun out as well called Students for Carbon Dividends. And so now you have a growing population of college students who say we believe in the science yep. and we need to solve this because this is becoming their problem. And so I see universities becoming very engaged on this topic. And once again, the built environment, which constitutes a large part of their energy, is absolutely something that must be solved. And I do think, once again, you know, it's probably a different podcast to talk about the future of learning, uh, right? That at what point does, does learning become, do you really need this certificate or how do you get those right experiences and apprenticeships that provide you the skills that people are willing to pay for? I'm 10 years out of school now. And with that rate of change that you mentioned earlier in this discussion today and how quickly things are evolving now, I think that we're going to feel that throughout our professional careers. I don't think that you can really rest on your laurels for a college degree throughout the entirety of your professional life. And so you've got to figure out what that future of learning is. And I am somebody that has used Coursera and Udemy and programs like that to, to try and stay sharp. Well, even so, the, one of the best examples I have is Bill Gates, who I think we would all agree is probably a pretty smart individual. He's done well. He's done well, made some good decisions. He also is a very active learner. And actually, I was talking to a colleague yesterday, and he's become very interested through his fund, his, uh, I'll call it a clean energy fund, of trying to find the, the right energy solutions for the future. Energy storage is a key component. And so he himself took an online class to better understand the chemistry involved with these storage solutions. So hey, maybe all of us could learn from that. That's right. He's feeling the itch. Kevin, you're also a mentor at FIRST, which I believe is focused on even younger than collegiate students. What is FIRST and, and what are you able to learn from your experiences with youngsters in that capacity? Yeah, so FIRST Robotics was founded by uh, Dean Kamen and Dr. Woody Flowers from MIT about 30 years ago. So actually, it was interesting enough. I got to know Dean Kamen my first job out of college. He had just sold his first company, Auto Syringe, wow. to Baxter Travenol, and so I knew him in the late 80s. He founded FIRST, and the reason for founding FIRST is he saw the U.S. doing a great job celebrating athletics, but not a same venue to celebrate academics. And his vision is, hey, everyone in the world of FIRST can go pro. You can all become professionals versus, right, those that play basketball or baseball were 0.01%. Yep. And so Dean 
felt compelled to drive this organization. Some may also know him. He was the person who invented the Segway. Segway yep. Yep. He also has a firm called Decker Research where he's working on a lot of the leading edge technologies that are helping to make the world a better place. But I got involved 18 years ago when my youngest son got engaged as a youngster. And, and so all three of my sons have been involved with FIRST Robotics. My wife and I are both mentors. And this year, Schneider Electric sponsored about 50 teams across the U.S. that all had Schneider mentors. And, and we're doing it for a couple of reasons. One, I see it as we're mentoring our future problem-solving team-focused colleagues. So these are the people that have to solve all these problems. How do you provide great learning opportunities for them in the STEM field where they can learn to work together? You work against each other. You compete against each other. And so it's an incredible opportunity to develop the next generation of, of leaders. The Air Force specifically has been involved with FIRST for a long time, and they have the data that says we know that recruits that come into the Air Force Academy, if they've been involved with FIRST Robotics, there's a much stronger likelihood of them succeeding in the Air Force because it's a focused set of skills. And so Schneider's very engaged. There's probably five to 600,000 students in the U.S. that are very engaged. So now we're all gearing up for another season, which begins next fall. It's a really great thing to be involved in because of the challenges that we've talked about that are constantly approaching throughout this podcast. The more people we can get that are engaged, involved, feel empowered to tackle solutions like that, the better. When you see a seventh grader who's programming the autonomous portion of a robot, <laughs> building these robots, and they're going to break and they have to fix them, you're thinking, wow, what are they going to be like in 10 years when I need you know, an engineer to come work for me at whatever my company is? And the skills and the experiences they're having now are making them much more impactful post-training. I think if I saw a seventh grader doing that kind of work, that would make me go back to Coursera and Udemy a lot faster to start, start learning more stuff and keep up. Very true. I've asked everybody this, and you're going to be the last person I ask in season one, and you've been an awesome guest, so thank you. Why are you excited to be a professional in the building technology industry? I've always been intrigued with trying to be involved with organizations that are working on the massive problems, right? The BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goals, but the big, hairy, audacious problems that need to be solved. I spent a lot of time in healthcare early in my career, and then later in my career, it's been involved with the built environment, with buildings, and with energy. And once again, the biggest problems that are in front of us today in this country, on this planet, deal with this topic of how we make this industry much more efficient? How do we do more with less? How do we move these buildings to carbon neutral? And so that is a massive problem and one that warrants a lot of time and attention. And it's one that gets me very excited every day to get up and get back to it. It's one heck of a life pursuit. I enjoy it as well. Kevin, thanks so much. It's been great having you. And I look forward to talking to you maybe in the future about the future of learning. Very good. Thanks, Tyler. And so we conclude the first season of Next Story Up. I'd like to thank today's guest, Kevin Self, as well as all of our inspiring guests for their fascinating insights and conversations throughout this season. You've heard enough from me, but I want to take one last chance to thank you for your investment in time and attention for this project. We'll now go back to work to determine how to make season two even better and look forward to connecting with you for more stories and discussions about the smart building landscape in the next season of The Next Story Up. Up. 
I am so excited to develop, produce, and host the Schneider Electric Next Story Up podcast, and most importantly, to share it with a listener like you, possessing the same interest and passion in promoting smart building services for the benefit of all. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. I'm Tyler Hake. season one yep. are you renewed for a season two has cbs come to you and you have your time <laughs> i i think i still have to present my case uh but <laughs> look it's uh yeah it's, it's it's exciting you're i think you're onto something here 